Back to the Future is one of the highest grossing science fiction film trilogies ever made. Marty McFly, a high school student in America, spends his time with a madcap scientist named Doc Brown, who's made his DeLorean car into a time machine. And throughout the three blockbuster films, Marty finds himself zipping from 1985 to 1955 to 2015, and eventually finds himself in the Wild West in 1885. Marty constantly finds himself in tricky situations with the doc, replying animatedly with all sorts of science fiction-y lines, lines like this. Obviously, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating this new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternative reality. Each film is a real action-packed adventure. But for fans of the franchise, what makes watching the film so rewarding is the links between each episode of the trilogy. You see, each film is enjoyable in and of itself, but when you revisit the first film in light of the second and third, you notice new links that you'd never seen before. And vice versa, the third film is so much more rewarding when you see the connections that the writers have made with films one and two. And today, we're going to engage in something which should excite our hearts far more than time machines and flux capacitors. Because rather than looking at science fiction, we will be adventuring through centuries of the Bible's history to witness an unparalleled masterwork, all woven together by the divine author. Instead of a DeLorean, we have the pages of the Bible in front of us to witness the wonders of the past, to see our present more clearly, and to marvel at the certain future ahead of us. And this is to kick off our new sermon series, Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the new So let's begin our travels by joining the wise men journeying into Bethlehem to meet Jesus as a toddler. After all, nothing says 30 degree heat quite like a return to your school nativity scene. But there are few better places to begin our journey and to see the connections from the old to the new than in these first chapters of Matthew's account of Jesus. Matthew's gospel was likely to be the first of the gospel accounts to have been written, It was originally written in Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples are likely to have spoken in their daily conversations. And its primary audience was likely to have been early Jewish converts to Christianity. No surprise then that Matthew packs his gospel full of striking quotations and allusions from Old Testament history, prophecy, wisdom, and poetry. And you can see that from the very beginning of chapter 1 on the previous page. Just turn back one page with me. You can see there Matthew begins by setting out a compelling genealogy. It's a little bit like peering into Jesus' very own family photo album, where we're taking on a journey through not just Jesus' own personal history, but Israel's history. Each name draws our attention to a chapter in the long history from Abraham through to King David and from the Babylonian exile all the way through to Jesus' own mother, Mary. Right from the outset, Matthew has in mind to help us to see that it is Jesus who fulfills the longings and yearnings of the Old Testament story. But he also wants us to see 
that knowing Jesus sheds light backwards onto our understanding of Israel's story. This is grander than the Bayeux tapestry fully unfurled. This is more epic than the Marvel Cinematic Universe at its most complex. And it has more fulfilling counterpoint than Bach's Art of the Fugue. Here we see the divine author drawing the many strands of history together, compellingly to draw us into wonder and awe at the sovereign plan for all of time and history. So, Let's unfold a small patch of his tapestry this morning to see how Jesus, the promised king, is woven throughout the fabric of scripture. Following on from the genealogy, the baby Jesus is born, and as soon as we begin chapter two on the next page, our passage for today, the soundtrack to the story begins to transport us to a different location. Wise men, we don't know how many, are saddling up their camels and are journeying over hill and plain 500 miles from modern-day Iran to enter into Jerusalem. They've seen a star in the east and they've traced it all the way to Bethlehem. And as they arrive, they ask in verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And immediately the mood music changes. They don't receive the warm reception that they'd expected. In fact, you can feel the conversation changing throughout the whole of Jerusalem. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And in some ways, Herod's response is hardly surprising. For some time, he had been trying to gain the approval of the Jews throughout Jerusalem He had even financed the rebuilding of the second temple, the place of worship for the Jews. And perhaps the thing that would have really made his jaw drop was the fact that his official title given by the Romans was the King of the Jews. And so when asked where the King of the Jews was, he would have been tempted, I'm sure, to say, I'm right here. And yet he isn't the only one to be shaken by this news. As we just read, the whole of Jerusalem is disturbed by this news. And what's more, Herod shares this news with all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law in verse 4 to find out where the Messiah should be born. And while they consult the scriptures and give Herod a response, Bethlehem, they fail to follow the star themselves. Here are a group of leaders, the church staff team of the day, who believe the scriptures to be true, true enough to consult the Old Testament and to trust the answer it gives, that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And yet, they can't walk six miles down the road. And yet... Here are a group of wise men from distant lands, not members of the religious elite. In fact, they are totally outside the fold. They are astrologers and stargazers and horoscope readers. And yet they willingly follow the star and make their journey towards Bethlehem. The contrast is meant to shock us. And Matthew here in drawing these total outsiders in is highlighting a vital theme of the Old Testament itself, something which was promised throughout the scriptures. And this is our first of three points this morning. The promised king is for all nations. There are many passages in the Old Testament that draw out this theme. 
But to help us just to get a little taste of uh, this this morning, um, we're going to turn back to Psalm 72, which was on page 586, where we see in the Bible's great songbook a foretelling of God's promises. This psalm is a kind of Israelite national anthem. But you will notice fairly quickly that this anthem is not inward-looking or nationalistic. It's a sung prayer about kingship, in particular King Solomon, who reigned over the kingdom of Israel. But like so many passages in the Old Testament, it looks even further ahead towards a promised king who will reign over all the world. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 4 where we hear this sung prayer for a king of justice and goodness. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. But look a little further down the page to verse 8. Notice the language about reigning all over the world and notice the reference to the kings of Sheba and Seba who came to King Solomon's court from distant lands to honor him. Notice the parallels with our story in Matthew 2, 1,000 years written after this psalm. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Gifts from distant lands, desert tribes bowing down before him. Matthew would have been well aware that as he wrote about the Magi from the east, that he was alluding to the great promise that Jesus was to fulfill, that one day... Every knee would bow before the king of all creation. He was entering into the world to fulfill the promises of Israel. But his arrival heralded the truth that had been brought to light throughout the Old Testament. This is a world faith. Anyone and everyone can enter into a relationship with the king of kings. And indeed, over two billion people claim him as their king from nations all across the globe today. Perhaps you're visiting all souls this morning for the first time. Perhaps you find yourself thinking, I'm an outsider here. I don't know when to stand or sit, and I don't know any of the songs. Well, here in Matthew 2, you couldn't find a group of people more outside the fold than these magi from the east. Where we would expect Herod, the king of the Jews, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and all of Jerusalem on hearing the news of the arrival of Jesus to make their way towards Bethlehem to welcome the Messiah, the heralded king. Instead, we find a group of astrologers from outside of Israel bowing down before his throne and offering their gifts. If you feel like an outsider, if you face prejudice, if you feel like you don't belong, this story is God's invitation and assurance that Jesus' arrival is good news for you. And this passage helps us to see that Jesus is no ordinary king. After all, his entry into the world was not a stately coronation, but an arrival in a small provincial town. The promised king is for the humble. And locations play an important part 
of Matthew's narrative in chapter 2. We've uh, already had wise men from the east, and shortly we'll see how this passage takes us to Egypt, to Ramah, and to Babylon. But before we journey onwards, we need to stop at the birthplace of Christ, Bethlehem. Today, almost 100,000 people live within its environs, and it's a key tourist destination on the West Bank. But at the time of Christ's birth, it was a small town with less than a 1,000 inhabitants, possibly a few hundred. This is not where we would expect a king to be born. No Buckingham Palace here, no White House in sight. This is a humble birth for a servant king. But behind its humble outward appearance lies a richer meaning. A signpost back to the Old Testament prophesied many years before Jesus' arrival. Just look down with me at verse 6 in Matthew 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here, uh, Matthew is quoting from the prophet Micah, who was writing 800 years before Jesus' arrival. Micah defended the poor and the marginalized against the self-seeking wealthy leaders of the day. Some self-made prophets would ask for money in exchange for a promise of riches, a bit like a modern televangelist. Give me $500 and I'll make you rich. But God had a greater plan for the leadership of his people, one which would bring humble, just, and merciful leadership back to Israel a shepherd king. Do you see the words at the end of verse 6? He will shepherd my people Israel. This is a shepherd king, a servant king. Sound familiar? The shepherd tending his sheep in the fields that no one thought should be king of Israel was made monarch, King David, all the way back in the 10th century BC. And where was that king born? Bethlehem. Matthew is continuing here to draw our attention to the connections between Jesus and Israel's story. And with every successive word of his narrative, he draws us further into the thrill of knowing that God is on the move. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived on earth and he is going to be humble, just and merciful. The kind of leader that Israel had been waiting for for centuries. The kind of king the world longs for to this very day. And here, in the pages of Scripture, we meet him. Well, the third point this morning is the promised king has come to rescue us. The wise men meet him. They faithfully follow the star all the way to the heart of Bethlehem. And so let's follow together from verse 10 in your Bibles. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The wise men see who Jesus is, worthy of worship, worthy of traveling 500 miles, worthy of their prized possessions. They could see that this child really was the king of the Jews, but also king of them. But quite quickly in Matthew, the soundtrack to our story darkens. It goes into the minor key. And this next half of Matthew chapter 2 is the section you aren't allowed to preach on at the Christmas carol service. 
My colleague Rico Tice once preached on this at a school carriage service. So I asked him, how did it go? And he said to me, brother, I never got asked back. <laughs> and you can, see, you can see there in verse 13 why. Joseph is told by God in a dream to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt because Herod is going to search for Jesus and attempt to kill him. And in this next section of Matthew's gospel, there are several levels of meaning taking place. It reminds me of the great animator and director Walt Disney, who made this staggering contraption with his team called the multiplane camera. And it allowed you to place the animated foreground of a picture in front of the camera above it with trees and flowers at the front of a scene. And then you'd put the illustrated characters like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs behind it And then behind that, you'd put the forest or you'd put the trees and you'd put a palace in in the background. And all of this allowed you to play with the depth of field and for the camera to give each scene a sense of depth. And that's not too dissimilar to what Matthew does here in chapter two. There are several levels of meaning to give this strong and vivid depth of field. Take this section of the gospel account. The foreground is the hiding of Jesus to avoid Herod's killing spree. But the background alluded to here by Matthew is Moses being hidden from Pharaoh's child-killing spree 3,200 years ago as shared in the book of Exodus. And all of this gives a richer meaning to what is happening at the time of Jesus' arrival. Just like Walt Disney's multiplane camera, it gives us a more vivid picture with depths of field. Firstly, he's associating Jesus with Israel's history, just like his family genealogy did in chapter 1. But moreover, he's also seeking to show us that while Moses rescued the Israelites from slavery and death by the Egyptians' hands, Jesus is going to rescue his people from the even greater enemy, of spiritual slavery and death. Jesus doesn't just fulfill prophecy. He fulfills all of the Old Testament's history and longing for eternal relationship. And to make that point crystal clear, Matthew doesn't quote from a prophecy. He quotes from a reference to Jewish history. And you can see that in verse 15 of Matthew 2, the short quote from Hosea, "'Out of Egypt I called my son.'" And if we, were turn, if we were to turn back to Hosea chapter 11 to see the context, I'll put the verses up on the screen, we see these words in verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Hosea is referring to the entire nation of Israel But Matthew, through the gift of divine revelation by the power of the Spirit, points to this additional new meaning that the original readers would have been unaware of. So on the one hand, we rejoice that God was faithful to the Israelites in rescuing them from Pharaoh. And then we also give thanks that God rescued Jesus from the hands of Herod the Great. But we also see the richer meaning that Matthew is alluding to here. Egypt stands for slavery and destruction. And while in the original Exodus story, these words referred to physical slavery and mortal death, Jesus promises to be the greater Moses as he will come to deliver all of Israel and all nations that bow before him 
from spiritual slavery, from sin and everlasting death. So let's go back to the future in our passage in Matthew 2. With Jesus safely in Egypt, Herod sets about to kill the babes of Bethlehem. And here, finally, Matthew draws upon one final reference from the Old Testament in today's passage. Quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 18, we read, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this quote takes us back around 580 years earlier to the fall of Jerusalem, to the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it is at Ramah that the Israelites who were to be taken into exile are assembled to head off on their journey into Babylon. The Old Testament tradition based on the account in Genesis is that Rachel is buried in Ramah, which is on the road to Bethlehem. And so Matthew links the mourning and grief of those lost at the time of the Babylonian exile with the weeping at the loss of life in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' exile to Egypt. But it's likely Matthew had in mind the verses which follow in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verses which look forward with hope. Verses which point us to the plan which God has for the descendants of Israel and their journey to the promised land. There is a hint here of the eternal promise which Jesus is about to usher in. And as we've heard already, this is something which all nations will be invited into. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. The promised king for all nations, the promised king for the humble, and the promised king to rescue us. And that same king invites us to respond. And there are two, there are two invitations I'd like to share with you this morning. The first is to wonder. Marvel at the way God's word is beautifully stitched together. See the way that Jesus was promised centuries before he arrived. See the pattern of what was to come in the Old Testament, but also revisit the old stories in light of Jesus. Just consider the many different authors who put pen to paper and the way in in which the divine author's master plan from beginning to end is totally unified in its mission and purpose. He is sovereign, all-powerful, and all-knowing. And you can see that in God's word as together they make the most striking tapestry of history. This really is the greatest story ever told. Savor it and thank God for making us a part of the story by inviting us to receive Jesus and by promising us the certain hope of an eternal relationship with him. And as we wonder, we should respond in worship. The wise men's response to hearing the news of Jesus' birth. You remember the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and even King Herod himself, they knew and believed the Old Testament prophecies to be true. They made the effort to consult the scriptures to see where Jesus was to be born and believe it enough to tell the Magi that Bethlehem is the final destination. And yet, as we said earlier on, they can't bear to travel six miles down the road. They wanted to throw Jesus off the throne. 
And there's a challenge here for all of us who know our Bibles well this morning. We might know the truth, but if we don't respond in worship with a living relationship with Jesus, then what is it worth? Matthew wants us to see that there are only two responses to Jesus' entry into the world, either to reject him or to bow down and worship him and offer our lives. We'll either want him dead or we'll make him our king. And the next time we hear the words king of the Jews in Matthew's gospel is at the cross of Christ. Matthew intentionally bookends his gospel with this kingly title because he wants us to see that his birth was always planned to lead to death and to see the contrast between Herod the Great's self-centered leadership with the costly, self-sacrificial, loving death of Jesus, his kingship leadership, from humble birth to a criminal's cross. The servant king who spanned trillions of stars into space at the beginning of time, who came down to be Emmanuel, God with us, and the savior who died on a Roman torture instrument. That's the king, church, who invites us into relationship with himself. The promised king stretched out his arms on the cross under the banner of the king of the Jews and invites us to enter into Israel's story and to believe in the Messiah. I, through grace, a member am. Taking upon the cross the sins of the world, the punishment for our transgressions and offering forgiveness to each one of us, Today is a great opportunity to open up the Bible and to get to know the Savior who can rescue us from our sinfulness and fallenness. Like the Christmas star risen in the sky, now he is risen and ascended, and he invites us to come and bow before him today. His light permeates every page of Matthew's gospel account. We don't have the star of Bethlehem to behold in the sky But we have the illumined words of God's gospel story through which the light of the world can enter into our darkness to bring light and life to all humankind. Today, wonder at his word and worship the king. Let's pray. Father, be gracious to us and bless us. And Father, we pray that Christ's face would shine upon us today that your ways would be known in all of the earth and your salvation among all nations. Father, we pray that the peoples of this world would praise you and come to know you. And we just pray for each one of us this morning, those of us that believe your word to be true, help us to wonder at it anew. And Father, for those who might be hearing these words for the first time, we pray that we would bow before you in worship and come to know the King of all of the world. Help us to wonder and worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.